it's Hanukkah. And that means it's time to talk about prophecy. Shabbat Shalom! And welcome to another episode of Spirit of Truth Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Collins. And also, Happy Hanukkah! So tonight, this is going to be an introduction to Hanukkah. But, obviously, first off, Shabbat Shalom. As most of you know, or maybe all of you know, this is the seventh day of the week. This is the day that Yahweh set apart. He consecrated and he made holy to him. This is a gift that he gave us, a day to rest. And it's a holy appointment, kind of like a weekly date night to spend time with our creator. So just just as a weekly date night is to focus on your spouse and to reconnect, just as that's so important in our fleshly, earthly marriages, how much more so is it to do with our bridegroom, Yeshua, or Jesus? So Hanukkah, before I dive into the backstory and history and all of those things that really get me excited because I know how most people are with history. Boring, right? But I'm a weirdo, I know. So I want to cut to the chase at least just a little bit. I'm going to try not to slip in any spoiler alerts yet. But first, a lot of people ask, what does this Jewish feast have to do with me as a Christian, as a believer in Jesus? Isn't it just Jewish Christmas? Or like a wish.com knockoff of the Christian Christmas? No. Hanukkah, meaning Feast of Dedication, commemorates the great victory in Israel over King Antiochus Epiphanes, the pagan tyrant who tried to eradicate the Jewish people in 165 BC. It also marks the rededication of the temple, which had been defiled by the Hellenist at that time. But don't let me lose you yet. Think about the timing of this. The Old Testament, the Torah, those were already in place. But Jesus hadn't come on the scene yet. He hadn't been born of a woman yet. He had not resurrected or ascended yet. So that means there's no New Testament at this time. Only the Old Testaments and the writings and the prophets. So think about this. The king was trying to erase the Jewish people from the earth. Not only erasing their culture and their way of life, but the people too. Without this victory, the victory of Hanukkah, there would have been no Jewish people for our Messiah to have been born into. 
And I'm sure that was exactly the plan of our enemy to try and prevent the birth of our Messiah. But God's promises always prevail. So this victory is critical to our existence and our salvation. So I know a lot of us are Bible buffs that listen to this podcast. So as we go through this, I want you to really listen to see if anything you hear sounds familiar. Like, have you heard any of this anywhere else? So over the next few minutes, or several minutes, we're going to go over the story of Hanukkah. We're going to talk about why is it celebrated for eight days? What prophetic implications does it have, if any? And then really, what does this mean to me and my Christian walk? So buckle up. Here's the story of Hanukkah. First off, we find this story in a couple of places. It's referenced by the renowned historian Flavius Josephus. And the story is also told in the first book of Maccabees. It's an undisputed historical account, and it was even included in our canon of scripture at some point, but was later removed and only cited as historical rather than inspired. But nevertheless, God was clearly on the side of Israel and leading this victory. And this story is so good and honestly mind-blowing to hear it. I don't want to take away from it and I don't want to read it verbatim, but I am going to be reading it in parts. But to set the stage, Alexander the Great had been the ruler of the known world for about 12 years and he was dying. There was no heir to leave his throne. So he divided up his kingdom amongst his four top military generals. And so this is how the story begins. With a world order being divided into four parts. His servants succeeded him. This is the servants of Alexander the Great. Each in his own domain. After his death, they all put on crowns as did their sons after them. And for many years, they did much evil on the earth. And there sprang from them a sinful shoot named Antiochus Epiphanes, and he became king. In those days, there arose out of Israel lawless men who persuaded many, saying, let us go make a treaty with the heathen around us, Forever since the time we became separated from them, many misfortunes have overtaken us. And the plan seemed good in their eyes. They built a gymnasium in Jerusalem, exactly in the heathen fashion. 
and submitted to uncircumcision and disowned the holy agreement or the Torah, their covenant with God. Meanwhile, Antiochus goes on to subdue and conquer Egypt. And next up for him is Jerusalem. It says, in his arrogance, he went into the sanctuary, the temple. It describes how he stole all of the temple furnishings, the altars, the lampstand, the table of showbread, the censers, and even the curtains. All of the temple treasures were either ruined or stolen. And then he massacred many people and he spoke with great arrogance. And according to the writing of Flavius Josephus, Antiochus put a stop to the daily sacrifice for three and a half years, or rather 42 months. Well, that's 1260 days. The people of Israel were overcome with grief and mourning. After two years, Antiochus sent back an officer to collect tribute. And he spoke with them craftily in peaceful terms. And they began to trust him. But then suddenly he fell on the city and struck it in a great blow and he destroyed many of the people of Israel. He plundered the entire city, burning much of it down. He took women and children captive. And he put sinful heathen there who did not obey the law and they entrenched themselves there. They shed innocent blood all around the temple and polluted the sanctuary itself. Then the king wrote to his whole kingdom that they should all become one people. So everyone should give up their own particular practices. And then all the heathen assented to the command of the king. Many from Israel agreed to his kind of worship, and they offered sacrifice to idols, and they broke the Sabbath. And the king sent word by messengers to Jerusalem and to the towns of Judah to follow practices that were foreign to them, to put a stop to their offerings, to break the Sabbaths, and to profane the feast, to pollute the sanctuary, to build altars and idol temples, and sacrifice pigs, to not circumcise their sons, to defile themselves with every unclean and profane practice so that they might forget the law of God and change all their religious ordinances. And anyone who did not obey the command of King Antiochus would die. It was on the 15th day of Kislev in the 145th year that he erected a dreadful desecration upon the altar. And whenever he or his men found a book of the law, the Torah, or the Bible, the king's decree condemned that person to death. On the 25th day of Kislev, that sacrifice on top of the holy altar was made. The women who had circumcised their babies were put to death while their dead babies hung from around their neck. 
Yet many of Israel still stood firm. They refused to eat unclean. They refused to profane anything sacred. They preferred death to sin. So many in Israel died under King Antiochus Epiphanes' decrees. There was a family in the town of Modin who was approached by the king's men. They were promised favor and more if they would turn from their covenant with God and follow the king's orders, as their influence would encourage others to do the right thing as well. The patriarch of this family was Matthias Maccabee. But as a man of the word of God, he did just the opposite. He made a loud proclamation to his faith in Yahweh and the commitment of him and his family to remain in covenant with God. Meanwhile, another Jew stands up and he decides that he will go make a sacrifice on the altar of, on the altar of Yahweh, but to a God of Antiochus. In righteous anger, Matthias runs up and he slaughters this Jew who was willing to sin against God in fear of man. And then Matthias also turns around and he kills the officer of the king who had been persuading them to do so. And Matthias makes one of his most memorable decrees. He says, let everybody who is zealous for the Torah to stand in agreement and come out after me. So Matthias and his family, as well as many others, they fled the towns of Judea and they fled into the mountains to go live a life in accordance to the word of God. But once Antiochus heard of this rebellion, he was intent on putting a stop to it. So he decided to attack them on their Sabbath, their day of resting. Initially, the Jews didn't want to fight back. It was their day of rest. And many were slaughtered as a result. But with their backs against the wall and their culture on the brink of annihilation, they sought God and they realized they must persevere. They decided that they will fight to the death to defend their God and to defend the continuation of a covenanted way of life. On his deathbed, Matthias gives another remarkable speech, reminding his family and his followers of the goodness and the faithfulness of God. He cited all the heroes of our faith and how in the face of adversity and even death, that Yahweh was faithful to deliver his people every time. And he appoints his son Judah, Maccabee, to lead on. So he tells his people, you must gather about you all of those that observe the law. And you all must avenge the wrongs of your people. So Judah, his family, and this group of ordinary people, they defended themselves and became unarmed conquerors. But this made Antiochus furious. And he vowed to crush them, to destroy them, and even efface their memory from the earth. Knowing this, Judah and his brothers immediately sought refuge in God. They gathered, they fasted, they prayed in sackcloth and ashes. They called on the Nazarites and they read from God's law, from the Torah. They even blew their shofars and they shouted and they called on God to help them. They went on to win the battles and they would always first praise Yahweh. Then they were able to pillage 
and claim treasures like silver and purple cloth. Many things that I suspect that they would use later in the temple. Even yet another major battle was fought and won again by the Jewish people. Again, average, ordinary people, victorious over well-trained, well-armed armies of thousands. Judah declares that it's time to go and take back the temple. But when they arrived, they found it trampled down, polluted, and profaned. So they began to cleanse their temple. They tore down the pagan idols. They broke down the altars. They cleansed their temple and they built a new altar, holy unto the Lord. And it was on the 25th day of Kislev when they had completed all of their work and they declared an eight-day feast of the rededication of the temple to Yahweh. A feast of gladness and of joy. And they declared it to be celebrated each year at this time. So the tradition of Hanukkah began. The root word of Hanukkah is the Hebrew word Hanak, which means dedication. It's Strong's H2596. The word alone means so much. It means to train, devote, to dedicate, inaugurate, or set apart for a particular purpose. It's first used in scripture in Numbers chapter 7 when Yahweh was given instructions on the tabernacle in the wilderness. He gave them directions on exactly what to do after it was built to anoint, to sanctify, and dedicate the tabernacle to him. These same directions are then followed at Solomon's temple. And when Cyrus called for the rebuilding of the temple, and again at the dedication of Nehemiah's wall. According to Proverbs 22.6, we are told to chanak, to train up or dedicate our children to the ways of Yahweh. And this is why every Sabbath that it is custom to speak blessings over your children. But this is also why the Torah commands that every male child be circumcised on the eighth day. As in Genesis 17, 10 through 14, Leviticus 12, and Luke 2, 21. The number eight in Hebrew is always representative of new beginnings. There were eight people on the ark that started this world anew after the flood. It's also representative of a servant in the first shall be last. And if you think about the cycle of days... The last is also the first. The eighth day of the week is also the first day of the week. And this cycle is repeated all throughout scripture and can go very deep. But we see this pattern repeat so many times if you think about how we count the years of a jubilee. And even this is part of the last day of the last of the annual feast of Yahweh's seven commanded holy days. Sukkot has a great eighth day. 
This is actually the Israeli war that we are in now with Hamas. Began on the great eighth day. The season of Passover and unleavened bread together are eight days. God's anointed David was the eighth son of Jesse. The Levitical priesthood of Aaron and his sons, they were anointed on the eighth day. I could go on and on, but it is a significant number, and this pattern was established in the beginning. So following this pattern that had already been set forth in scripture, the holiday of Hanukkah follows suit. So it's tradition that small gifts are given each one of the eight knots. And that's why many have accused this holiday season of merely being a knockoff of Christmas or a Jewish Christmas. But I say no. Without first Hanukkah, you would have no nativity. But then they say, well, gifts are pagan, right? Again, I say no. Matthew seven eleven says, if you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who seek him? And James 1, 17 says, every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. So does Hanukkah have any prophetic implications? Well, it was first prophesied in chapter 11 of the book of Daniel. Started with the kings mentioned. You can follow it down. Alexander the Great, 11.3, whose kingdom was divided into four by his four generals. See verse 4 of chapter 11. And continue down to Antiochus, the first through the fourth. The kings before Antiochus, the kings before Antiochus, Epiphanes anyway, they were more benevolent and they allowed religious freedom. But just as Daniel predicted, this one was different. He added the name Epiphanes, which means God manifest. See chapter 11, verse 46. And he had hatred for the covenant with God. Verse 30. And he wanted all of the Jews to assimilate or Hellenize, becoming as the Greeks. And he would murder anyone being caught, being obedient to God's laws. He murdered the mothers for circumcision of their children. And sometimes he murdered the babies and hung them around their mother's neck. He forced them to eat pork and commit abominations or be killed. And many Jews died at his hands. He also set up what some say were an obelisk. Some say it was a statue of Jupiter or maybe Zeus, but was made to look like himself. 
on December 25th of the Julian calendar of that time. He ordered the daily sacrifices to Yahweh to be sopped, and he sacrificed a pig on the holy altar of God, completely desecrating the temple, fulfilling verse 31 of chapter 11. So if you haven't picked up on all of the clues just yet, this event is a foreshadow to end times. God's prophecies, I would say nearly always, have a dual fulfillment. You can see it clearly in the first exodus, in the Passover, the sacrifice of the lamb, the application of the blood of the lamb, then Yeshua's greater fulfillment when he was on the cross as the Passover lamb. And we are saved by the blood of Yeshua, the blood of the Lamb of God. Yeshua even confirms this in Matthew. Because don't forget the Maccabean revolt happened in 166 to 160 BC. But in Matthew 24 verses 15 through 21... It says, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Then let them flee in Judea to the mountains. Let let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him go that is in the field to go back for clothes. And woe to him that are with child that gives suck in those days. And pray that your flight not be in a winter or on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, or ever shall be. To all the people who would have been around Yeshua at this time, they thought the prophecy of Daniel had already been fulfilled in the story of Hanukkah. So to hear Yeshua say this was mind-blowing. That it was going to happen again. But we see it in Revelation. But in hearing this verse from Yeshua and Matthew about the abomination that makes desolate, about fleeing from Judea into the mountains and leaving everything you have behind. Even the verse about woe to those that are with child that give suck in those days. All of that just lights up and makes perfect sense once you know the story of Hanukkah. It's not so confusing anymore. Also, scripture tells us in 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you yourselves are God's temple? And that God's spirit dwells in you? So let's look at this story again. We see sin entered the temple. And the temple became defiled. But God had given us a pattern to follow. To cleanse us. And rededicate the temple. We've all sinned. And those our bodies, our temples, have become defiled. 
and through the blood of Yeshua, we are cleansed, symbolic even in baptism, and made ready to rededicate our temples to our living God. And brothers and sisters, that is the true meaning of Hanukkah. And that is a huge reason to celebrate. So this is the perfect time to reflect on the dedication of our physical temple. It's time to rededicate ourselves to God over these next eight days. And then after Jesus or Yeshua in Hebrew literally means salvation in his name. And that salvation, the cleansing of our temples, that's what we're celebrating. He's recognizing this holiday as the middle candle of the menorah or Hanukkah. That middle candle is called the Shamash candle. And this is the candle that gives light to all the other candles. In John 8, 12, Yeshua says, Once again, Jesus spoke to the people and said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life. And we remember this as we light the Shamash candle. Also in Isaiah 42 verse 6, he says, I'm the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you. And I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a lot to the nations. As believers, his lot is in us. Just as he was the lampstand that lit the temple, his lot is lighting our temple still today. This is one of the reasons that Hanukkah is called the Festival of Lots. It's not just the Festival of Lots because that's what Adam Sandler sang about. It is for Jesus, the lot of the world. We even see Jesus attending synagogue on Hanukkah. It's there in John 10. And there he made the declaration that he was the Messiah. So on that note, let's talk about the Hanukkah, which is a non-branched menorah and widely known and recognized as the symbol of Hanukkah. You see, it's very similar to the seven-branched menorah. The seven-branched menorah is a representation of the candlestick that was used in the Holy Temple. And there's a lot of speculation here, but I don't want to skip over it. Some will tell you that we celebrate with a menorah because of the miracle of the oil. And that story goes something like this. Basically, when they found the temple ransacked, they only found a tiny bit of oil. And apparently it was quite the tedious process to get the first and the best, the purest oil that was to be used in the menorah. And it would take eight days to do so. But fable has it that the one tiny bit 
lasted and lit the temple the full eight days until they could make more. Honestly, I don't see any historical account of that. Some say it's a legend, some say it's a fable. Hmm. Either way. But on that note, they do fully celebrate with foods deep fried in oil. Most notably, jelly donuts and potato pancakes. So if you think about it from that perspective, here in the South, it's kind of like Hanukkah every day. But it actually seems more logical that the following is true. Exodus 20, 4 through 6. This is where we are told not to make for yourself an idol of any image of any kind or any image of anything in the heavens or on the earth or in the sea. The seven branch menorah was a holy instrument used in service to Yahweh. And accordance to that scripture, they didn't want to celebrate this holiday by making something holy as common. Scripture forbids that as well. So they made a non-branch menorah, which also corresponded to the eight knots with a shamash or servant candle in the middle. The candle that gives light. The shamash. Shamash means servant. And again, a nod to Jesus. Matthew 20, 28. Jesus declares that he came not to be served, but himself to serve. And Revelation 21, 23 says, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates the city, and the Lamb is its lamp. Matthew 5, 15, Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Each night of Hanukkah before the candles are lit, there are blessings said, but even before the blessings, we have to set up the menorah with as many candles or oil or wax, whatever you're burning, as many candles as knots, in addition to the one extra candle, the shamash. Generally, the candles are inserted in the menorah, insert them starting at the right, the right of the one who will be lighting the candles. Each knot, another candle is added to the left. However, the candles are lit from the left candle with the newest one, you then light them from left to right. But before actually lighting the candles, normally blessings will be sung. Blessings of honor and of praise and thanksgiving to God. My personal favorite one is the concluding blessing 
on the closing of the Sabbath that falls during Hanukkah. It concludes with, Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, creator of the universe, who differentiates between the holy and the secular, between the light and the dark, between Israel and the nations, and between the seventh day and the sixth day. Blessed are you, our Lord, our God, who differentiates between holiness and common. So it's appropriate now that we read Ezekiel 22, verse 6. I'm sorry, 22, verse 26. It says, Her priests have violated my law and have profaned my holy things. They've put no difference between the holy and the profane. Neither have they shown any difference between the clean and the unclean. They've hid their eyes from my Sabbaths, and I am profaned among them. It's clear it's very important to Yahweh that we listen and do what He instructs us. So let's try not to offend Yahweh by making common what is holy or by mixing we're told in 1 Corinthians 6.19 that our bodies are temples. We are now the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So please consider that not only this Hanukkah, but as we move forward, let our bodies become a welcoming, holy place for His Spirit to dwell. 1 Peter 1.16 and Leviticus 11.44, He said, Be holy, for I am holy. So while Hanukkah isn't one of the original of seven, the seven of God's commanded holy days, it's a very important observance in our walk of faith. By knowing our history, we will, we will be able to better recognize and even prepare ourselves for future events. So what can we learn from Hanukkah today? A lot of very wise people said this, if we do not know our history, we're doomed to repeat it. Today we live in a culture where greater and greater tolerance is perpetuated. Tolerance normally leads to apostasy. And even just in my lifetime, it has gone from sin being tolerated to being paraded. We kicked God out of schools, and now we're putting preachers who openly practice abominations behind pulpits. Scripture teaches us that it would have been better that we as a nation had never even known God versus to have known God and then turn away from Him. Because at that point, we're now anti-God. We see time and time again that when a nation does this, that God first allows in bad leadership and then being taken over militarily. Where are we on this timeline? Did you know for the first time in nearly 2,000 years, actually, I take that back, for the first time in over 2,000 years that the stage is set and ready for the temple to be rebuilt. A 
according to the Temple Institute in Jerusalem, all of the holy instruments for the tabernacle or the temple, they're ready. The priesthood is ready. The priesthood has been waiting since 2016. And there are multiple red heifers. These red heifers, they have the land, they have the cows, they are in Jerusalem, and they will be of age. And they are actually speculating that they will perform a sacrifice with these red heifers in Passover 2024, according to CBN News. Holy cow. We're close. With this being said, in Melissa's opinion, there's never been a more important time to first find Jesus, repent, and submit yourself to God. But also in preparation, know his word and glean from the things that he has given us. In other words, Kanak, rededicate. We need to know this story and be prepared. We need to know what to look for and most importantly, how to react. And it's important to remember the entire story of Hanukkah and how God's holy people withstood the test of persecution. They held fast to their commandments and their beliefs and then they were exalted by God in victory over their enemies. May we have that same bravery, faith, and dedication. Thank you for joining me in this podcast. I hope that you have been blessed. If you have any questions at all, you want to learn more about Hanukkah, please reach out to me. We're available on Facebook at Spirit of Truth Podcast. You can find um, the host page for myself, Melissa Collins, or reach out to us directly on the page of the podcast. Again, thank you so much. May God bless you and keep you. His face shine upon you and give you shalom. Shabbat shalom and happy Hanukkah.